there's two ways of approaching this, and neither way are wrong. You can sit back and simply listen, and that will be fantastic. Or if you want to take notes, or if you want to take anything else down, that's what that handout's there for. It's to help you jot down anything uh, that, that you might find interesting in this series. And the series is called The Blank Page in Your Bible. Now, this maybe works if you have an older Bible, because I've discovered in all of my newer Bibles, they don't have a blank page anymore. Do you remember your Bibles used to have that blank page? Um, I discovered no mine goes straight from Malachi into the New Testament, um, but maybe your Bible does. But you, you understand what I'm saying. There's a gap. There's a physical gap in our Bibles, whether it be a blank page or whether it be a page that says the New Testament. There is a mark somewhere that changes, and that one page or that one demarcation is worth 400 years. That one page is worth more than the whole of the New Testament in terms of the time span that it covers. Now, whenever you think about the history of the children of Israel, um, even in their 70 years of being in exile, they changed dramatically. Whenever they went into exile, they were called the children of Israel. Whenever they came out of exile, they were called Jews. No longer would they ever be referred to as the children of Israel. And even you think in our own context, what a difference five years has made, and how five years' worth of history in our own time has shaped us differently today. We've new language. I was listening to uh, the radio this morning, and they were talking about this, and homeschooling, people thought it was only for the super rich and posh. Oh no, homeschooling is now for everyone. Um, the other one, uh, social distancing, that's a new word, a new phrase for us, and how often are we now using it? And so even in a space of five years, new language, new ways of doing things. So how much can change in 400 years? Well, if you go back 600 years from our own time, you had the Reformation, and the world changed dramatically. And so the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament is significant, and we'll come in a moment to find out why. Part one of this, there's probably going to be about five or six parts, uh, most likely six, and we're going to be looking at Alexander, Alexander the Great, and you may know that name if you've ever been to Scotland, England, Hadrian's Wall, um, you know, that all comes from that idea of um, movement that actually Alexander the Great started in BC that led then later in the years for Hadrian to build that wall to demarcate those two countries. Well, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it because I think it's good to do. And forgive me, um, we're doing it because I enjoy this little bit as well. But my job as a teaching elder um, is not only to try and think about where we are and what we should be looking at, but it's also what I learn and what I find of value. I have a responsibility to pass it on. And in the, the little quiet time resource that I use every morning called Table Talk, um, the February edition this year was Jewish Life in the Days of Jesus. And it really covers this time, maybe not as far back as we're going this evening, but it talks about the society into which Jesus was born and how that completely shaped, uh, whenever you look at it, shaped the ministry of Jesus. 
But if you go back 15 years, I did night classes at Belfast Bible College just for fun. There was no um, qualification at the end of it. And we actually did um, a course called The Blank Page in Your Bible by Desi Maxwell. And I never, I didn't realize I still had my notes. I thought they were long gone, but it turns out I have my notes. But you're not getting Desi Maxwell's um, lectures because he gives very little notes. <laughs> um, so between the two and simply other things that I've read and just an interest, that's why we're going to look at it. You've got a few reasons there down on your handout. We're going to look at the historical steps that produced the culture and the religious order of Jesus' day because that's what he went to challenge. He went to challenge that religiosity. But that, re that religious structure wasn't there by the time we finished the Old Testament. It doesn't, it's these 400 years that it's formed. It's the political arena that he comes into and why there's nationalism and why there's insurrection, why it is a complete melting pot of human history. But Probably most importantly, looking at this allows us to understand the 400 years of silence. It allows us to understand, well, we may not know much from Scripture about what is happening, but those 400 years very much shape Scripture as we go into the New Testament. So how are we going to study this? Well, we're going to use historical knowledge to fill in the gaps. We're going to look at some other documents that are there, but we're also going to look at Scripture and look at passages that reflect what happened in history. You're going to hear names um, that I'm going to have difficulty spelling, Ptolemy, which begins with a P. Uh, you're going to hear about Josephus. You're going to hear about these people who are actual historical figures who played key significant roles or were um, the record keepers of these days. But we're also going to look at Scripture itself and see how it speaks about and how it uses the events of what is known as the intertestimonial period. Um, and we'll, we'll look at that, what that means in a minute. But most importantly, it's not just about knowledge, it's about how we're going to apply it. You know, biblical knowledge isn't simply just being able to recite verses. Biblical knowledge is being able to understand what to do with it. That's what knowledge is. It's not about storing up facts but it's about living it out. And so as we look at this and look at the era into which Jesus came, we are going to learn each week what it means for us and what it reveals to us about God and about his son, Jesus. So let's start with this period known as the intertestamental period. So the 400 years, it's between the testaments. That's why it's called the intertestamental period. And actually, if you want a word or an idea that covers this time, it's the Greek word pleroma. And that simply means fullness of time. In other words, it's trying to communicate to say that these 400 years, just because they're not in Scripture, doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. It means that within this mix of 400 years from the Jews coming back from exile to the birth of Christ, this is the time that was used so that as we would read in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 to 5, and if you do have your Bibles, turn there to Galatians chapter 4, but it's on the screen. We read that Paul saying, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, that's what these 400 years are all about, the fullness of time. Some of your translations might say, at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. It's significant, as we'll see, Jesus coming into human history when he did. The religious nature of the Jews had fallen away so far, it probably couldn't have got any worse. And at just the right time, Jesus came in. The political um, stability, the Roman peace that was really across the known world, that anyone could travel freely and safely, meant that the gospel was spread the quickest it ever has in human history, following the death and resurrection of Jesus. The political melting pot opened the eyes of some Jews, but also Gentiles, who had lost all hope and looked for true hope in God Almighty. And so, to help you think about there in the middle of page one, we have a timeline that'll help us think about what's happening in this period. Now, this isn't the full 400 years. We're really only covering the first 100 years or so this evening. But if you were with us in the evening services um, about a year and a half, two years ago, we did Nehemiah, and you'll remember those walls being built. Well, they were built at 445 BC. Now, remember, we're counting down here. Um, so I, I got my dates mixed up. I kind of lost track earlier this afternoon, so I had to do a bit of re-editing. But yeah, we're counting down. In 433, really the last footnote of Nehemiah, we're told that Nehemiah visits Babylon there in chapter 13 and verse 6. But 433 is also the time of Malachi's prophecy. Now, Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra. And Nehemiah's prophecy, although it doesn't, um, it doesn't last for three years, it's a rather short, but it really takes us up to 430 BC, and then we have biblical silence. That's when we hear no more, and we have the 400 years of silence. But the world doesn't stop. The Jews don't go to bed one night in Jerusalem with their new walls dedicated and wake up and it's a Roman world. In between, in 386 BC, you've heard of Plato. Well, he starts something significant. He starts something called the Academy in Athens. Now, the significance of this is, this is when structured uh, pluralistic thought begins. The debates are moved away from being religious-centered they become more to talk about society. They become more about who can win the debate. Now, does that sound familiar as we move into the New Testament with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the teachers of the law? Actually, it was Plato in 386 BC who started that process of debate that then infiltrated the Jewish way of life, the whole way from Athens across the known world. The fellow that we're going to look at tonight was born in 356 BC, Alexander the Great, and his father was Philip II of Macedon. And a significant moment happens in 338 BC when Philip conquers Greece in the Battle of Sharonia. 
And that really establishes Alexander the Great's foothold. Because what Alexander will do is take over in leadership from his father and then conquer the world in 10 years at the age of 20. That's why Alexander's significant. By the way, he dies when he's 32. But at the age of 20 or 21, he basically has the known world in his hand. In 332 BC, Israel is captured and comes under the Grecian Empire that will be. And then finally, in 333, Alexander gets to the extent of his empire and the Persian Empire, that was the empire that Nehemiah and Israel lived in. It was the empire that Daniel served under. It kept going up until 333 BC when Alexander the Great declared himself as ruler of the empire and made it a Greek empire. And then he dies in 323, just near Babylon, or just outside the city of Babylon. You have the map, and that's basically uh, the Persian Empire. That's what he will inherit, but he will add to it. So this is the time period in which Alexander the Great is living. And you know, you'll still see there Babylon, is still a powerhouse. Alexander is there. It's really at the center of that empire. And, you know, Israel is still a backwater. That's what it always was. Remember, Israel has never been a free people since exile. They've always come under the authority of someone else, and certainly will up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So that's the Persian empire that we're beginning with. And so let's move on to think about this man, Alexander the Great. He was born in Pella in Macedonia in ancient Greece, um, or as we would know it today, just simply Greece, and he died in June 323 BC outside Babylon. And what happened was, as we've already seen, from a very young age, he was a very able fella. He was able to lead, but he was also able to train, and to, he was skilled in, in really commanding legions of soldiers. And at the age of 20 or 21, he had conquered the whole of the Persian Empire and made it into a Greek empire. But the problem is you can't do much in a decade. You might be able to conquer the world quickly, but you can't change it. And so actually, Alexander the Great's contribution is more his vision and legacy rather than his actions. And so his legacy is what we call Hellenism. And you might have come across it whenever we talk about Hellenistic Greeks. And this, he wanted to form a society based around this group of people called the Hellenists, or the, uh, and called it Hellenism. And what it was, he was trying to go back to ancient, ancient Greek. He was trying to get back to an even more classical version of the classics, where society was structured, where you had the civilized and the barbarians. And the barbarians were never allowed in civilized society. So your border was basically to keep civilization in and to keep the barbarians out. That's what he was aiming for. So his legacy was to have a Greek spirit, a very much a Greek character that was right across the empire and one civilization looking to that higher culture or that humanism of the ancient Hellenes or Hellenes. 
So that's how it would have been defined. And really at the center of everything he did was the city. Um, have you ever wondered why Metropolis in uh, some uh, television shows is called Metropolis? Because it comes from the Greek word polis, which is city. And that's what he wanted. He wanted cities. He wanted centers where this Greek culture could be gathered around and he could, in every place, intellectual life, cultural life, social life, trading life all came together. And that's what actually Alexander has left, how he's left his mark on the world, because he gave us five things. And this is where you might need your pen or pencil to write down some of these. The first thing that he gave us <clears throat> was the agora. Now, in the polis or the metropolis, <coughs> was the agora. And the agora, the agora was supposed to be the place that would gather everyone. It was a place of long colonnades. It was a place where you would socialize. It's a place where you would walk. It was to be a place of beauty where the intellectual mind would meet, where people would come to trade, where people would really do all of life by gathering everyone together. And of course, at the center of the Agora was the temple of worship, that pantheon of Greek gods. But it was all built around recreation and the labors of mankind. So his big idea was about gathering people into cities, but then in the cities, gathering them so that they could discuss and talk. Whenever you think about Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, where did everyone go? They went to the Temple Mount because Greek society had been structured in such a way that you went. It wasn't just a Jewish tradition and custom, but it was what the Greeks had brought to the world, and the Romans continued this idea of a center where everyone would gather. Believe it or not, gymnasiums have been around a long, long time, and it was Alexander who brought the gymnasium because the Greeks idolized the body. Adonis, that perfect Greek god with a perfect Greek body. That's what everyone was striving for. And so the gymnasium was a place where physical education took pride of place um, and really sometimes give more importance to than intellect because the men were striving for the body beautiful. And so it was about creating a society in Alexander's mind, of beautiful people. The next thing he gave was the stadium, and it was the stadium that really was the center of the Olympic Games. So it wasn't just about having that Greek body, that body beautiful, but it was about other people coming to see it. Spartans, uh, the Olympics, seeing the physical test of the body, because in Greek mind, we controlled the body. Humanity controlled it itself. So therefore, the more work you put in, the more glorification you would get because you competed in this way. But then there was culture because the theater, we're all familiar with the amphitheaters around um, sort of southeastern Europe or even within France and Spain and Portugal and Italy. 
that idea of the theater where people would gather and they would be entertained. So that was a huge part of it. There was this cultural sense, but at the center of it all, of all of these places, you had the temple. Worship, a pantheon of gods. This was the center of where Greek life was to be. And you worshiped each god based on them and on what they could give you. So Adonis, the god of beauty. Zeus, the great god of strength. You have these gods in a pantheon that Greeks would worship. And so whenever you come then to Paul and you see what he had to do, it wasn't just that it was Roman, but you had 400 years of Greek culture that influenced Roman society because, of course, Rome came out of Greeks. And whenever you go to Rome today, you can see every single thing that we've just looked at because of Alexander the Great there in the capital of the Roman Empire. So his legacy has been one that has been huge. And this is the world into which Jesus came. He came into a world where the Jews were not only fighting nationally, but they were fighting religiously. They were fighting to ensure that their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, was the only God people would worship. And they would challenge, and they hated the Romans who would come with all of their gods. And of course, whenever we get to Paul, we know that whenever he traveled, he went to places where they even had uh, positions for the unknown God, just in case we left one out. We'll just make sure we've covered all bases with a space for the God that is unknown. So into this, based on the influence of a very short life of one man, of maybe only contributing 15 years to this world, he managed to shape up to 600, 800 could arguably be, even to today, philosophy of how humankind views itself. But you know, it's no surprise that Alexander was coming on the world scene. Because there at the bottom of your page, of page two, there is um, a map of how Daniel foresaw Alexander the Great, not knowing him by name, but prophesied of this man who we believe to be Alexander the Great coming into the world. And so you have there the green, um, well, you have different empires within that map. But um, what, what Alexander was trying to do was this idea of ecumenism. We get our word ec ecumenical or ecumenism from it. But this sense of one world what his vision was and what he was quite successful in doing was uh, syncretism. And syncretism is the fusion of creeds. He wanted to get all of the peoples together. He wanted them to intermingle all their religions so that no one religion would have superiority over the other. And that's how he believed he was going to rule the empire. Of course, he died. But that continued on as culture and faith was synchronized together, matching up under this idea of Alexander's vision of ecumenism, one world. And so in Daniel's vision, we see the extent of the empire that Alexander would have. 
The red line, it goes to the left from, or it goes on the, the, east, the west of your map there, uh, from modern-day Greece, right across to our middle, uh, or the, the, um, the Orient or the ancient east there, um, as far as India, uh, Alexander's empire managed to get, and of course down into Egypt, which really was a powerhouse for him as well. The whole known world in time was under his power. But yet it was Daniel who prophesied that this would happen. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 to 8 just to see what Daniel says about this. So Daniel chapter 8 and verses 1 to 8. There we read these words. In the third year of the king Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the uh, Ulai Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. And became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven." So Daniel, Daniel 1 to 6 is what we're familiar with in the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But for the rest of the book of Daniel, he prophesies what will happen. Some of that, well, the majority of that prophecy is to do with what will happen immediately after his lifetime, and in fact, possibly within his lifetime. But others points a little bit further along the way to the coming of a savior, a rescuer for the people Israel. But it's in chapter 8 that Daniel speaks of Alexander the Great. It's in Daniel 8 that he prophesies of Alexander. And so let's look at the three ways that he does this. And you have them there. The first one is he talks about the ram in verse 3. And so in this vision, Daniel saw an all-powerful ram with two horns. 
And one of those horns was slightly longer than the other. And, and what we have here is the ram representing the Medo-Persian Empire. Because where did it come from? Remember, Daniel says that it came westward. In other words, it came from the east, and it went west, it went north, and it went south. And what did Assyria do? Well, Assyria came in and overtook, and Persia came after Assyria, and they expanded their reach into the east, or sorry, into the west, coming from the east. They overtook Israel. They overtook Syria. They overtook into Greece. They were strong. They were powerful, this, uh, this uh, Medo-Persian empire. And of course, the, the higher horn represents the stronger, which was the Persian part of all of this. And so, uh, the, the horns represent the people groups, but the ram itself is the political force that came and conquered. And the language is that they came swift. They came swiftly, as the Assyrians did, and they took captive for 70 years. But in verse 5 then, there's another animal comes on the scene, and it's described as a male goat. And this male goat has only one horn. So it has all of its own power. It's not that there's two powers at play here. And where does it come from? Well, well, it comes from the west, so it's coming from the opposite direction. And where does Alexander come from? Well, he was born in Greece. That's where his father is the king of Macedon, Philip II. And after Alexander will come Philip III. And that's their home base. And they sweep across in a matter of years to conquer, because look at what Daniel says about um, the goat. The goat actually moves faster than the ram. We thought the ram was quick. Well, no, the goat's feet don't even touch the ground. And what do they do? They subdue. The goat subdues the ram, which, which shouldn't be the case. The ram is supposed to be stronger uh, than the male goat. And yet, the male goat representing Alexander the Great, as Daniel prophesies in what is his future, that this male goat will completely take over the world. And that's where we go in verse 8, because verse 8 tells us um, that the goat became exceedingly great. Now, I'm not about to say that that's why Alexander the Great's called great. That, that's not the case. But there's no doubt that Daniel says whoever this goat is, is going to be great. They're, they're going to be an empire like we've never seen before. And that's exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. But notice what he says next in verse 8. He says, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. At the age of 32, after he had accomplished the largest empire in human history to that point, he dies. The horn is broken. And yes, Philip III will come after him, but he can't control this vast empire. You know, he's, the, he's too young. He doesn't have the, the authority. But who comes up after him? Well, it's Alexander the Great's four generals. And that's the four parts of that map back on page two that we had. Um, let me see if I can pull it up again for you. 
Daniel's vision of, of what would happen. That map shows you on page two the four regions in which these four generals of Alexander would rule the earth. So from the one horn comes four, the four generals. So Alexander the Great may not have anything written about him in the blank page in your Bible, but Daniel is making it very clear that this goat, who now, as we look back in history, and as we look at the, the other um, prophecies that Daniel have, exactly what he's describing is exactly Alexander the Great. So he is prophesied as being the one who will shape and form the whole world. And that's exactly what he does, what he does, and it is into that world that Jesus comes. So we're going to finish by thinking about application. So it's prophecy fulfilled. And to understand what we can learn from this section of intertestamental history, we have to go back to where we began. We have to go back to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. We have to go back to that fullness of time. And so within that first 100 years after the walls of Jerusalem are dedicated, the world changes dramatically. But yet it's all building to that moment that Paul speaks about, the fullness of time. In the next 300 years, that will take us down to year zero, as it were, no one is going to have shaped the world as much as Alexander the Great. He has laid the foundation of the society Jesus will live in. And so when we understand that there was a fullness of time, that there was a plan, a, a timing on God's part, then we see these 400 years as being significant. They're not just simply written off in history. They are significant because of what they do. And I guess whenever we think of that, whenever we think of the fullness of time, and whenever we look at our own history, even in the recent years, we still have to acknowledge and recognize that God is at work in human time. He's at work in human history. He has to be. As he's done it before, he's doing it again. Because there will be a date that is not known to us and a date that we cannot figure out. Many have tried and that date has come and gone and still Christ has not returned. Jesus himself makes it very clear that no one knows the hour or the day on which he will return except the Father in heaven. But yet God has a date. God has a day. God is still working in human history in the fullness of time to bring about the second advent, the second coming of Christ. But if we go back to the great songbook, long before we ever had to look at that 400 years of history to realize that, it was the psalmist who recognized it because there in Psalm 31 and verses 14 to, 20, or 14 to 16 we read or we sing, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Psalm 31 is a refuge psalm. 
You're probably familiar with them. The Lord is my strength and my refuge. Whom shall I fear? Well, that's how Psalm 31 begins. It's the Lord is my refuge. It's recognizing that the Lord is, is the rescuer. The Lord is the savior of his people. And whatever was going on at the time of this psalm, the psalmist believes that no matter what is happening in human times, no matter what is going on in their very life, no matter how difficult, well, those times of life are very much placed in the hands of God because He is the God of refuge. And so whether we're looking at 400 years of intertestamental history or whether we're looking at our own time in history, we can sing with the psalmist that my times are in his hands. Therefore, they're not out of step with him, but he is very much in the knowledge and in control of what is going on. You see, he uses each season in life for his glory. He has to. Otherwise, his ability is, is restricted. If God isn't the God overall, well, then he isn't God at all. He has to be omniscient. He has to be in every place at every time. He has to be because he is God. And if we believe that, if we believe that everything in human history is working for his glory, even though we may not understand how or why, particularly given the, given the events that we're witnessing at the moment in Ukraine, well, we have to echo with what the Apostle Paul says in, Galatians, or in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, no matter what we face, we still have this overarching knowledge of in the fullness of time. 400 years are not insignificant and are not unimportant because they teach us that God works very much in humanity. He works very much in human history so that however he has revealed himself to us today, well, this is the perfect day that he's chosen to do it. It wouldn't have worked yesterday and it won't work tomorrow. Today is the day. And so as we go to sleep tonight, as we lay our heads on our pillows and close our eyes and whether we sleep for three hours or for 10 hours, we will wake up in the morning and we will be confident to know that the times of tomorrow, of that day ahead of us, are in God's hands. And everything is working together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It's only through Jesus Christ and through living faith that we can know with confidence that God is at work in each and every way and every day. At the end of that, I've given you some questions to think about. You're not going to discuss these at your table, but they're questions for you to think about at home. They're questions to mull over as to how do we learn from this. Yes, I've given you a bit of history. And it will build, by the way, part one will build into part two, just as history does. But the significance of this is the knowledge that God is in control. And whatever we face, 
we must have the confidence. And so those questions help us to think through in our own lives what that means. I'm going to pray for us now as we finish this part, and then we're going to take a few moments to pray just as we close this evening. So let me pray first, and then we'll talk about some things to be praying for. Our Father God, we do thank you that as we have looked in your word tonight, it is very clearly in the prophecy of Daniel shown us the events that we've now seen in human history. So not only is Daniel significant in that prophecy, but that whole historical period is significant for Christ coming into the world. So as we learn more, as we think of what this time in history means for us today, may we be mindful that you're the God in history and you're the God in our time now. You do not abandon us. And so whatever we will face, whatever we face today, whatever we will face tomorrow, may we sing with the psalmist that our times are in your hands and therefore we need not fear because in you we find our refuge and our strength. But may we also realize with Paul, as he writes to the church in Rome, that all things in life work together for the good of those who love you. And so as people who love you, whatever we face, may we know your strength. May we know you as our security and our refuge. And may we know that it is you who is in control and that it is you who will never allow us to be separated from you. So may we have this confidence as we leave this evening and as we respond to you in Jesus' name.